Hey, everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of MileMarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. Everybody, welcome back to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, CEO of MileMarker and host of Connected. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Matt Sonin, and my co-host today is Judd Mackerel, making a making a guest appearance on the Connected podcast. Uh, both of you, so happy to to have you join the Connected show. Thank you. I, I guess it's uh, I, I must feel honored to have both of you on. Uh, this is great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. Well, welcome, welcome. Uh, okay, so Matt. Sometimes we start these things with like, give us an introduction to yourself or whatever. I'm not going to do that today. Uh, in doing some research, I found out about a story where when your son was born, you and your wife sent a message to Eddie Van Halen and there was some connection there. So I, I don't want to spoil it by trying to say it myself. I want to start this podcast off with the story between the birth of your son and Van Halen. And I'm just going to hand you the mic and let you tell us this incredible story. <laughs> well, it's so... It's so cliche LA of us, but my, my wife knows Alex Van Halen's next door neighbor. <laughs> uh, okay. Very random. She used to work for him. And so I've been a Van Halen fanatic, not just a fan, like complete fanatic my whole life. So when our first born child was born, I said, well, his middle name has to be Edward. So Luke Edward Sonnen uh, was born in 2013. And Reese didn't tell me she was doing it, but as a surprise, she sent Luke's birth announcement and a, a Van Halen onesie that she had bought. And she said, hey, my husband's kind of a, a lunatic. He named his uh, a son after you. Would you mind signing this onesie that, we, uh, that we've, we've included? And so she sent it to her friend who then got it to Alex, who then got it to Eddie. He's such an amazing person. I've never met him. I never had the chance to meet him in person, but not only did he sign the onesie, but at least the way I imagine it, he just sort of walked around the studio and started throwing things in a box. We got a couple of picks that actually were worn out. So I'm assuming he's the one that wore them out. So he threw a couple of picks in there. Alex Van Halen drumsticks. He threw uh, a, a shirt, uh, that, not the one that we asked him to sign, but a shirt for Luke uh, he threw in there. And then the, the really amazing thing was clearly we wouldn't have even known to ask for this. He grabbed a vinyl copy of Van Halen 1 and both him and Alex signed it. And they like to Luke, uh, Matt and, and Reese, all the best, Eddie Van Halen, and then dated it 2013. So we were floored when all of this uh, came back. But uh, yeah, that's the, that's the story of, of uh, what an amazing man he was and, uh, and our uh, son Luke's connection to him. <laughs> man, that's awesome. Cause I, you know what I think is really neat about that is rock and roll as it as a whole kind of has this brand about being like tough and tumble and stuff but you hear all these stories about these classic rock legends who have these sort of soft hearts for these types of things and i wonder sort of where that comes from it's 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 really unique to hear something like yeah. that yeah everyone i've ever i mean i've i've read every interview from him and about him everyone said he was the the sweetest person and 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 just mm. just wanted to play guitar that's all he he was he definitely lived the rock star life but uh just wanted to be a, a musician yeah well, where did the love for classic rock come from? Because I know that's like a huge thing for you. Like you play a little guitar yep. yourself. You're really, really into classic rock. Like that's a, a big part of who you are. Where did that come from? So, I mean, obviously the, the age I grew up in, I'm born in 1975. So, you know, I was in those formative years in the early 80s when MTV was nothing but classic rock. So my sister, I think she was in eighth grade. I would have been in third grade. She broke up with a guy that was into Motley Crue. And so when, once they broke up in, you know, eighth grade love, <laughs> uh, once they, once they broke up, she threw all these Motley Crue albums at me. She's like, I can't look at these. And so that was sort of, uh, what kicked it off is staring at that shout at the devil album, but this is crazy. <laughs> and so, yeah. And then be, just because MTV was so prevalent with Def Leppard and, and then of course, 1984 comes out, Van Halen was on MTV every, every 30 minutes, Panama hot for teacher, everything else. So I think it was just the, the, the sign of the times. I, I got hooked quickly. 
I love it. Have you have you been to any? Because a lot of these guys are doing like either you know reunion tours or whatever you want to call it. Have you been to any any shows from any of the like classic rock bands that have been touring around in like their fifties or sixties? So I wanted to. So Wolfgang Van Halen, Eddie's son, is now out there touring. Uh, he's got his second album actually comes out in a, in a couple of weeks. I wanted that to be Luke's first concert. I thought that would have been cool. He missed uh, going to see Van Halen. I thought, oh, I'll take him to Wolfgang. But he's playing, you know, he's he's just getting started out. He's playing these small clubs that are standing room only. And poor Luke's 10 years old. He wouldn't, he'd be staring at somebody's back the whole the whole time. So we were like, what are we going to get him to, to go see? So probably a little too old uh, for him, but uh, we're taking him in September. We're going to take him to see Steve Miller, which both Reese and I have seen, you know, 20 years ago, we've seen, we've seen Steve Miller, but we're going to, we're going to take him to a, a Steve Miller show in September for his first big concert. Cool, man. All right. So jumping into a segment that we like to just call connect the connection segment. So the name of the show is called connected. Uh, it's all about building better connections, whether that's through technology in the industry or through the industry's people. And Matt, I know that you're personally great at connecting with others. You build rapport really easily. I've seen that from afar and I've seen it in our relationship. So I would love to just pose the question to you. What advice would you give to the to the listener that wants to build better connections? They come to you. They say, hey, Matt, how do I build better connections? What would you tell them? So I use humor to connect with folks. I've I've been told countless times that my giggle that I've already displayed a couple of times in, in, the, in this conversation, my giggle sets people at ease, shows them that I'm a real person. My sister and I are both big gigglers and, and my COO Roundtable podcast that I do is sprinkled throughout all those conversations have that giggle going on. Ironically, I think my, it's kind of a weird statement, my self-confidence allows me to come off as humble. Because I'm confident that I know what I'm talking about, I've never felt the need to use these big, complicated words or go above and beyond to impress people. So I like keeping things very casual. One of the best compliments I received from a former boss of mine was that he said, you can explain very complicated concepts in very simple terms. Because again, I've never felt the need to overcomplicate things. I see people do that sometimes, right? They're overcomplicating it just to make themselves look smart. So I always try to just keep it, you know, very simple. When we started recording videos for the COO Society, uh, we had hired a, an instructional systems designer. So he created all the little cartoons. I would do the audio and then he would create these cartoons. In his prior career, he was doing instructional videos, like internal, like for big banks, employee training videos. He was very confused by me <laughs> when he first met me because he says, are you sure that like you want to be this casual? He was very used to like the very buttoned up. And I said, look, I've got to be me, number one, and I think people are going to learn this content better if we keep it simple, we keep it fun, and and then he he really embraced that, and we would put little humor things. I'd have you know we have this little cartoon version of me we call Mini Matt. We'll have him like fall over in the middle of a video, or he'll spill his coffee down his shirt, or something like that, just to kind of break up things. So I think that's how I connect with people is is just talk to them in simple terms, keep it a real conversation. And, and sprinkle humor and, and, and my giggles <laughs> uh, throughout. Do you strategically place giggles in or do those happen just organically no, and naturally? No, it's, it's, it's totally organic. Uh, again, talk about connecting with people. If I was, if I was doing it unnaturally, it wouldn't, it wouldn't connect with people. But just, you know, we're talking about on our podcast, we're talking about, uh, I, I use the term nerd uh, very lovingly. I call myself an operations nerd. We're talking about these very nerdy topics, but to then have this giggle throughout just, just kind of throws people a little bit and helps, helps them connect. Try to look like you're getting ready to hop in there. I'll let you, uh, I'll let you well, hop in. I mean, I was curious, like as an operations nerd, like what's the nerdiest stuff that like you kind of feel like, okay, at this point, when I cross this line, this is actually, I'm nerding out on operations. I, as a non-operator, I'm just super curious. I, and I, I think that's why I've, I've gravitated to the to the phrase nerd because I nerd out on process and efficiencies and and let's let's document. I mean, a lot of people say you're very good at what you do, Sonnen, but uh, I would rather slam my head in my car door than than like write out an <laughs> yeah. operations manual of all of our processes. And I'm like, I would spend my Saturday. <laughs> Uh, uh, banging out like, okay, step one, step two, step three. So I just, I'm a process, I'm a process nerd. <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so important. Like, you know, when you start building stuff and you realize, oh man, we actually have to do this right. Like we have to, we have to document this thing it has to be scalable and repeatable. Um, and then you realize I need that person that just is passionate about 
operational detail and, and nailing the landing. Yep, that's exactly, so, uh, that's, that's cool. exactly right. As you add more and more people to the organization, you just, mm -hmm. you have to, you know, the RIA space, you know, I've worked with a lot of breakaway advisors. Oh, I'm leaving the corporate world and we're going to start our own company and it's going to be loose. And isn't this going to be great? But then you, you all, you wake up one day and you've got 40 employees and nobody has any institutional knowledge like written down anywhere. And it's just, oh, that's in Bob's head. Like it just, you can't, you can't scale. You can't scale that way. I want to flip the script a bit on, on a, a question that I typically ask. So typically I would ask folks, how can advisors better connect with prospects or clients? But you actually have this unique spot where you sit in the COO role and you have to, to connect with advisors, you know, underneath your firm. You're, you're constantly needing stuff from them, whether it's adoption related or, you know, is it compliance related or HR related? I think there's a lot of requests that come from the COO to advisors. So there's a lot of people listening to this who I think would resonate with the question of, how can we better connect with advisors themselves when there's so much that we need from them and they've got a million things going on? So in your yep. seat, how do you better connect with advisors? Yeah, it's a, it's a great timely question because here at Coldstream Wealth Management, I'm still in my honeymoon phase. I'm not quite at my 90 day mark here of being the, the new COO at, at Coldstream. So I'm spending a lot of my time trying to build rapport with the advisors and First of all, you have to build credibility, right? During my initial conversations with them, speaking one-on-one -on -one with the advisors, I've tried to show that I understand their business challenges and I'm here to help them grow and service their clients. I think operations folks in general can get too caught up in, in the stuff that I nerd out on, the efficiencies in the process, but they forget about that larger, you know, the business initiatives and the larger 10,000 foot level. They get so tied up in, in, the, in the weeds. So I think some of my success has been the ability to weave both the business side and the, the nerdy operations process side. I'll also say with a COO role, unfortunately, you know, many times you have to say no to advisors. And I try, I've always been very conscious to try not to simply just say no and say, yeah, we can't do that. I try to come at it from, well, I can't do it exactly the way you've just asked me to do it. But what if we did it this way? I can get you 80% of what you're asking for. We can't do it exactly the way you want because, and then I'll explain the business reason why the way they want to do it isn't going to make, make sense. But I think they respect that. They're more likely to accept my proposed solution if I'm explaining the reasoning behind it rather than just saying, no, we, we, we can't do it that way. So I think that's how, how I've connected with advisors over the years and, and how I'm actively doing it here at Coldstream. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I feel like what I heard in there... It's like the concept of trust deposits, right? So how do we how do we deposit, you know, these elements of trust into the bank, the relationship bank over time so that when you need to make a withdrawal, you're not going to go into a deficit. Yep. You know, we all know a, lo a lot of advisors, especially top producers, aren't used to being told yep. no, right? So I think you've got to you've got to have a lot of trust deposited and built up in there so that when you have to say no, you know, there's still going to be a lot of relational equity there and it's a lot of giving, That's right? That's right. That's 100% right. Yep. All right. So let's transition into the industry segment here. You know, we didn't do like a proper intro, but I so I think maybe just 30 seconds on you've had this this unique spot of you talked a little bit about Coldstream here. So the, you're the COO at Coldstream. You also run the COO Society, which you mentioned a little bit. And then you had PFI advisors for for a little while. So, I mean, you've really sat at the center of like, what does it mean to to be excellent at operations, to build operations at an RAA firm, all of that sort of stuff. I, I wanted to just start with what do you think holds firms back from creating true excellence in operations at a firm? Because everybody has to operate, right? There's no such thing as a firm that is has zero operations. You either have you know, bad operations, you have good operations, or you have excellent operations. And I think everybody would love to be excellent. How do you help a firm go from bad to good or from good to excellent? Well, building kind of on, on the, my previous answers, I think technology and operations folks, they, they forget that we're in a people business, right? It's a relationship business. And so tech is great, but it has to be used to support the human interactions that we're having with clients and, and prospects. I think the quote, digital experience is very important, but at the same time, I don't see clients asking for a digital interface that drives the relationship with their advisor. They want the ability to check their household value at 2 a.m. if they can't sleep, they can't get access to the advisor at 2 a.m. So they want that ability, but they still want that human connection with their advisor. 
I think some firms have gotten carried away with robo solutions and thinking clients are actually asking for an AI experience with their financial advisor. I'm so tired of the headlines. What AI can do for your, you and your firm? I just, I don't, it's a people business. <laughs> so to achieve that true excellence that you're asking about, I think they have to keep the human interaction top of mind and then build the technology and the processes around the client that, that enhance, not replace that human connection with the advisor. All right. So next question here is kind of going along those lines, but I, we know a lot of firms out there that uh, they're all trying to find like a great COO and, and a lot of them run like EOS or traction. Yeah. And so a lot of them are like, Hey, I'm the visionary at my firm. I need an integrator. Like I need this person who can come in and really help me and that COO role. So if, if you were hired as a consultant by like the founder of an RIA and they're like, Matt, we need to, we need to find a COO. And so you were asked to come in and interview and help them hire a COO. How would you go about finding the perfect fit? You know, taking into consideration what you just yeah. said, it's a people business, they need to work with humans and everything, but how would you suss out, like this is a great COO candidate. So for the person listening, maybe they can take this away and help them go find that perfect integrator. Yeah, I've been asked this question a lot. <laughs> so in my PFI advisors days, you know, we did, a, we created a, a COO white paper several years ago. And, and in the, the paper, we broke the COO's role into three main components. There's managing the tech stack and building workflow improvements around the various components of the, of the tech stack. Then there's human resources. I say it all the time. I, I think 75% of a COO's job is wrapped up in HR and interacting with the employees. And then the third component of the COO's job description really is just the day-to-day -day administration of the business. So when you're looking for that you know, perfect fit, I think you look for, for people skills, right? That's the most important going back to your first question about building rapport with people. Will people listen to this individual? Do they have charisma that can drive change management at the firm? Do they have a deep understanding of the tech tools and how those tools integrate with one another? I think some firms make the mistake of they have to, this COO has to have exact experience in my tech stack. Like if I'm using Tamarack and this COO candidate has experience in Black Diamond, for example, they do have to understand the general bells and whistles that come with a reporting provider and how data flows from the custodian into the reporting tool. But I, I don't get hung up on, oh, we're using Salesforce and you, you're the firm you used to be at is using Redtail or whatever it may be. I, I don't think, you know, I, that, that's a big mistake, I think. And then probably most important, and this is hard to gauge during an interview, but can this person juggle multiple projects at one time? On our, you know, the COO Roundtable podcast, we always discuss how the general job description of a COO is do everything around here that isn't getting done. <laughs> so you need to look for, can this COO have their hand in a lot of different projects? And maybe they're not leading every project, but they're going to be asked to opine on a lot of different things throughout their day. And can this person kind of keep track of all of that in their head? Or are they going to continually be logging into Zoom calls saying, now, what is it we're talking about again? Can everybody get me back up to speed like that? That will drive the, the organization to a halt. So that's a hard one to gauge, but that might be one of the most important things to look for in a, in a COO. I, it feels like, I mean, the... The role of, if I'm looking at this industry, I'm at a macro level, maybe a 10,000 foot view, not a 30,000, but 10,000 foot view. And I look at all the different headlines and all the different pubs that cover our space. It's so-and-so buying yeah. so-and-so. Um, and you, you think about that from the consolidation standpoint, but at the end of the day, there are operating personnel and operating leaders that are ultimately just having to absorb that. What has all that done, you know, to the people that you are in community with and mentor yourself personally? How does that really, all the consolidation that's happening, how is that really impacting the, the role of a COO in a modern wealth management firm? Yeah, it's, it's people first, right? The easy, well, not the easy part of the job, but the easy thing to think about is, well, we just consolidated two RIAs. We're you, again, we're using Tamarack, they're using Black Diamond. We're going to have to figure out which of those systems wins out and which... But the harder part is getting everybody comfortable and the humans interacting with all of this new technology. So figuring out roles and responsibilities, everybody's worried about, do I still have a job? Company A and company B, well, they have my position over there that, you know, am I still going to have a job? Titles are a huge hiccup in, in these integrations, right? Uh, well, 
I was a senior vice president at the at at the old RA, but the new RA doesn't have senior titles. So now I'm just a vice president. I've just been demoted. They feel like I've just been demoted because I lost senior. So there's again, it's the people side of the business, and and it's explaining all of this to people and getting everybody comfortable and making sure they don't feel like they've just been demoted. Making sure they understand what their new role is going to be at the at the organization, and then figuring out the the, the tech stack. But the people side of M and A, I think, is overlooked a, a lot of times. Yeah, I think a lot of people like on the, you know, the buying the M&A team side, you know, from the from the acquirer are really always looking for a one plus one equals three sort of scenario. But I've found that getting to that math often has a a multiplier of of time. The concentration, the ratio you gave in terms of thinking about like 70 plus percent of this is people. Like, I think that's really helpful. I've been through that, like understanding like 70 percent. Yeah. It's true. And then also the clarity on how do we synthesize all that stuff. But like, what are the other things that you've seen that have been like, you know, really transformational to where you actually, as an acquirer, feel like you made a positive ROI, not a month later, but like yeah. maybe a, two years later? Ironically enough, the impact two years later all comes down to, well, why would, were you doing this deal to begin with? I, I, I think we all know it's the, the dirty little secret that nobody likes to discuss, but a lot of these are AUM grabs, right? And there's not a whole lot of thought beyond 500 million. I would love to have an extra 500 million on our ADV. So let's go and acquire this firm. But do they have a client niche that matches your client niche and or that you want to get into? Uh, if they're servicing completely different clients than you are, you've got to rethink all, again, processes and technology and everything else. If you're a family office, I put air quotes around that. Uh, there, a lot of people like to call themselves family offices in our industry. And your clients are 20 million, 70 million, whatever. They've got different needs than the maybe you just bought the, yeah, I, I like the 500 million, let's go buy them. If those are $100,000 households, one firm now servicing a $70 million household and a $100,000 household is going to just create a ton of inefficiencies and and problems, from not only from the tech part, but just the marketing and and everything else. So that's where the where you're going to get that one plus one equaling three. If there's been a, a logical thought process to why are we putting, putting these two firms together and are they going to mesh in multiple, multiple ways rather than just that AUM grab? So when we talk about the consolidation and, and, and acquiring and stuff, I mean, my head also immediately goes to the data stuff. And we think about that a lot here. But, you know, and, and where you sit and you talk to a lot of people, I'd love to hear you riff a little bit on why you think some of the bigger data challenges are still persisting for a lot of firms and what do you think it takes to kind of solve it in, in a lot of ways. This is what you guys are doing so great. So I'll give you the, the, the shout out. But one of the most popular blog posts I wrote in the eight years of PFI Advisors was titled, Integratable does not necessarily mean integrated. <laughs> it's it's right. It's it's getting the data flowing across your back office is the is the is the big challenge. And the tech vendors sometimes uh, won't name any names, but they the the sales folks love to say, "Oh, sure, we're integratable with your performance reporting tool or whatever whatever it may be." And you have to go that step further and say, what is your definition <laughs> of integrated? Um, because a lot of times what they're, when they say we're integratable, you assume you hear that word, you think, oh, it's going to be a two-way free-flowing exchange of data between both systems. And what they really mean by, quote, integratable is, well, we can do a manual download of data into Excel and then a manual upload of data into the other system. So it's all about integration of the back offices. And obviously I give you guys kudos for, I think you have a, an enormous opportunity in front of you in, in, in solving this. I've, I've said this before, there's only four or five major performance reporting tools out there. There's a million financial planning tools, but there's like three, right? That are really prevalent in our industry. There's a million CRMs you can look at, but there's probably three or four that we're really, picking this, these tools is not the hard part. It's getting them to talk to one another and getting the data going across them. That's the the, the big challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I, we use this sort of visualization sometimes of like a car, right? And it's like your portfolio management system is one of the wheels, your CRM is another wheel, your planning system is another wheel, right? And then like maybe your finance accounting system is like the four wheels of your your firm. And then all the other fun tech that you want to use sort of makes up like whether it's a you know different type of car, and all that's great. And that's your business is this vehicle it's sitting on those four wheels, but you need a quality engine to make it run, 
right? And and a lot of times we talk about how mile marker is trying to help give you that engine that's going to make the car actually move because the wheels don't turn if you don't have the ability to accelerate it or, or propel it forward. And that's just what we see. People buy great technology, but they have such a hard time getting the wheels to move in the same direction, right? The portfolio management system might be moving forward while this one's going backwards. And, you know, it's just, it, it's very frustrating. And I hear you say that a lot. It's like, Picking the tech isn't hard. Any, anybody can go sign a contract with a vendor. It's like making sure the jobs to be done are outlined properly, making sure that the people understand, going back to your comments earlier, and then that the engine is there to actually power all of this. So I appreciate you sharing that. So I want to talk about this too, though, because I think a lot of technology, when you hear this in the industry, it's like you always hear the bad, right? You always hear like, oh, I'm frustrated with this, or they aren't doing this, or nobody's doing this. I want to take a second, like, where do you think advisor technology is nailing it? Where are they getting it right? What do you think they're doing that's actually making advisors' lives easier? Well, the name of the game there is allowing advisors to provide top-notch service to an ever-increasing client base, right? As you add more and more clients, do your existing clients feel that the your service level is, is dropping at all? So that's the challenge for technology tools is to allow advisors to scale their time. So couple of examples, you know, the trading and rebalancing software has been a game changer. A model change across 300 client households used to take firms two and a half weeks, right, to execute one by one, entering those trades at the account level, you know, using the custodial interface. Now you can execute a trade, 300 households, maybe that's 1,200 account numbers. You can do that all in one day with just a, a few clicks of a button. CRM technology, when it's used correctly, has allowed advisors to stay on top of their clients and remind the advisor of all these client milestones, birthdays, anniversaries, children going off to school, whatever. Again, if it's used properly, they can run a quick report the day after the Denver Nuggets win the, the championship, right? And say, who are my Denver Nugget fans? And they can send this personalized note out. Hey, congratulations. What an amazing series. First time ever. You know, congratulations to you. So again, using the technology to go back to what we were saying earlier, using the technology to enhance that human contact. So we've built the tools. The struggle is now getting the advisors to adopt them <laughs> uh, and use them. So like I said, we've got this great trading and rebalancing software, but I'm still running into advisors who tell me, well, I have to be the one that enters the trades. I can't use my portfolio manager to enter these. Clients have hired me to do this. And I try to tell them, no, your clients have hired you for your investment acumen, for your ability to say, well, today's the day we're going to sell Google and buy Apple. But you should not be the one that, again, logs into the custodial interface and literally is typing, you, the advisor, sell 35 shares, <laughs> Google, buy 20 shares of Apple. So the implementation of these tech tools is still a challenge, but the tech is there and is, is if used properly, is adding a ton of leverage. Going back to Kyle's uh, driving analogy and just kind of how we think about that here, I'm actually working, I'm going to knock out an article tonight for our newsletter and... Um, Really, it's around the idea of a dashboard, like what's what's really driving you? What are your indicators um, of success? And, you know, having the perspective you have, I think, is really, really valuable because you I think you have a really good understanding of like in 80 percent of firms. These are the probable KPIs that you need to be thinking about every day. Uh, you just as a, as a chief operating officer or a leader in the firm, like this is what you need to be thinking about. I'm curious what what are those common denominators that you've seen? that advisors or COOs need to be thinking about when they look at their business every day? Well, again, I'm tying all my answers together. So the COO not getting too tied into the weeds, thinking about, again, that high-level goal of all RIAs is how do we provide top-notch service to more and more clients over time and not let anyone feel their, their service level is dropped. So keeping that as kind of their North Star and then thinking about, I mean, the great resignation and everything else, everybody's struggling with, with people right now and what to pay for, for uh, different roles within the organization, just getting the, the, the right people into the organization. But then once they're there, figuring out the roles and responsibilities and how they're working together, that's a huge one on every COO's plate right now. And then I would say just keeping up to, again, I'm, I'm driving the client experience and the human interaction, but keeping up to date on the different tech tools that are out there and, and what could be added around the periphery of uh, your performance reporting tool, your CRM, et cetera. Um, are there any other tools that, that are going to add that, that leverage? I love that. When you come in every day to help make sure you're achieving those goals and doing that, you know, you pull up a dashboard. What What's on the dashboard? What KPIs are you looking at to make sure that the firm is actually navigating to that North Star? 
KPIs are are tricky. There's there's quantitative and there's qualitative. And so the quantitative ones are easy, right? Obviously, net new assets outside of market, your tech should be tied into, you can back out market gains or losses. And so you know exactly what your net new assets are. Uh, we've talked about all the consolidation in the industry. So can you do that at the office level or team level, however you're, you're breaking it up, right? Do, do, not just at the firm level, but if you've acquired a bunch of businesses, do you know which of those businesses are growing and which ones aren't? So that's a big one. But then I, I always tell COOs, the qualitative stuff, I mean, yes, there's metrics out there of at this additional revenue or at this additional AUM, that's when to hire new employees. And that's hard. It's hard to peg it to an AUM or revenue number because it depends on who your end clients are. Um, again, as I we kind of talked to you earlier, if you're dealing with $70 million households versus $100,000 households, those metrics of revenue or AUM are going to be different when you need to hire employees. So to figure out if you need to hire employees, qualitatively walk around the office. Is it, does everyone look like a zombie, <laughs> right? Does everyone have bags under their eyes? Is your office packed on a Saturday? Like that might be an indication. <laughs> uh, or is it packed at 6 p.m., right? Are people not going home? So just look for for qualitative metrics as, as well as the, the the quantitative metrics. So dashboards, 100%, you need them and should be using them. But you also need to get away from your screen and just walk around the office and get a, just a kind of a litmus test of, of how, what's the, the air feel like uh, in the office. Yeah. But that's presuming you have an office. Still. True. I mean, there's a lot of firms that are now all remote. And I think that's the challenge. I mean, obviously, I was last when I was last inside of an RIA, we were going through COVID. But none of the KPIs were great because we were all just sitting here trying to do our best in front of Zoom, staring at each other's faces all day. I think that's a whole nother wrinkle here is like, how do I actually get a pulse check on all my people that, you know, I don't see, but maybe once a quarter, once every six months and really understand who they are. Cause that might be, that's a factor in the great yeah. resignation as well. Yeah. I mean, I, this new COO role that I've, I've picked up, I'm working remote cold streams in the Seattle area and I'm, I'm still living in, in Southern California. So, so yes, I guess, uh, I mean, thank you for calling me out on that figuratively walking around the office, right? It's, it's I'm on Zooms all day long and I'm doing one-on-ones yeah. -on yeah. with employees and, and we have all company meetings by Zoom, et cetera. So, so just gauging remotely as well, it's, it's very important. How, how are you guys, are you guys using Teams and things like that to keep, keep track of things or in, in communicate or how does that work for Cold We've Street? built a very cool intranet through just SharePoint. So we've got a lot of, again, we kind of what we were saying earlier that the how-to manuals and everything else, even the local folks are only in the office two days a week. So they're very Zoom friendly. So, and it's not mandated exactly which two days of the week you're in. We're a very Zoom friendly uh, uh, environment. So the intranet's big. We do every two weeks, we have an all company uh, meeting on Zoom going over any you know, big initiatives or we call out, we do a who's who and have a few employees, you know, give kind of their backstory and everything just to feel like, you know, we're interacting in, in the, uh, the hallways and things. You just have to be more deliberate around your communication style, but it's working. And I, I'm very impressed. Again, I'm still new, but I'm very impressed with everything yeah. that, that Coldstream's built out. And then in terms of like the HR pulse checks, are there any things like that, that, you know, maybe it's too early for where you're at Coldstream, but like, what are, what are firms doing around that to like, to qualify? Like, Hey, how are we, how am I actually doing uh, relative to that? And how frequent is that? Because I think when all of us probably got started in the industry, we were doing like that aspect of our lives was very minimal. And I kind of liked it that way, Yeah, <laughs> but you can't do that anymore. We can't, we need to have those sorts of things where we're constantly or consistently, yeah. I guess, proactively gauging how things are going. Yeah. It's, I am brand new, but because it's July, you know, it's, it's mid-year review time. So I've been meeting with my direct reports over the last couple of days. I've got one that's set this afternoon. We use a, a technology called TrackStar, and that's where we, we put the notes to the employee, kind of gives an update on where they are with their goals, and then the manager will add notes after they've had the one-on-one the -on -one communication. So we're doing that twice a year, mid-year and, and at the end of the year. 
But again, talking about kind of pitfalls that COOs run into or, or just any, anyone at the organization, the feedback can't only be twice a year, right? If you see something where an employee could have done better, writing it down and saying, oh, I'll talk to him in four months about this like, is not going to be you know, helpful. So you have to be, whether it's over Zoom or, or in the office, whatever, but you've got to be providing that consistent and, and constant feedback. It's super important. So I think what's cool is I'm, I'm listening to this conversation and I'm thinking about how much has changed since COVID. I don't think any of us would have thought that everybody would be working remote, you know, not long ago. And we're talking about a lot of technology. You see a bunch of different things. Your, your seat gives you a unique perspective. So let's have some fun. Get out your crystal ball. Where do you see the industry heading? Like if you look out into the future a little bit, um, what are some trends you see coming? What do you think is going to happen in the, in the space? So I've been saying this for a while. Every time this question comes up, I go, God, should I mention that one again? Because I've said it so many times. Michael Kitsis has said this way longer than I've been saying it, but I don't think we're played out on this on this theme yet. I'm still running into a lot of advisors who think their value proposition is based on their ability to pick stocks and make investments, right? They're, they're, they sit down with the client and say, or the prospect, they sit down with the prospect and say, you should hire me because I have this 25 stock portfolio or ETFs, whatever it may be. Uh, it's done really well in up and down markets. I should be your advisor because I can make you a, a lot of money. And I just think that's completely wrong. I, I think the pitch should be more financial planning based, more goals based, right? We're going to sit down with you, get really clear on how you want to use your money. And then based on those goals, we'll back into the portfolio construction from there. And then we're going to meet regularly and track how you're doing in relation to those goals. The conversation no longer should be, hey, let's sit down and, and talk about how your portfolio performed versus the S&P or versus some, some other benchmark. Uh, and again, I feel like I shouldn't be talking about this anymore. It should be, <laughs> it should be obvious, <laughs> but I'm still running into a lot of advisors that say that's my value. My, my value prop is, is my investment performance. And I just think that our industry is, should have been there by now, but is headed to this goals-based financial planning focused value prop away from the investment management. Yeah. It's so amazing, right? Because uh, this is completely anecdotal, but it seems like all of the happiest advisors I know and the most successful quote unquote advisors I know are the ones who outsource almost everything except for the planning and client relationship side of things. So they're going to spend all of their energy and time focused on how do I help this client achieve their dreams and goals? And I need to make sure I understand what those dreams and goals are, what the anxieties yeah. are, what the fears are, and how they're changing maybe month over month or as the world changes. And that's a whole lot of work in and of itself. So to think about, I'm going to focus on that, but then I'm also going to be staying right on top of everything that's happening in the market and all of these alerts and triggers and all of that. And then I'm going to stay on top of technology and I'm going to, it's way too much work. So I think it's really interesting that people haven't adopted more of an outsourcing mentality on everything except for the highest and best use of their time, which is helping clients plan better for the future, helping them achieve those plans and goals and dreams, and then being there to walk through every one of those moments with them, right? That client conversation is just going to be so, more, so much more meaningful, right? If you're talking about how do you want to use your money, Mr. or Mrs. Client, let's talk about that rather than, again, it's just a, a report card every uh, 90 days. This is how we performed versus the benchmark. This is how we performed versus the benchmark. Geez, we've been down a couple quarters in a row. I hope I don't get fired. I hope I don't get fired. Like if that's what you've set your value prop as you're, you're just, you're, you're setting yourself up for uncomfortable conversations. Well, we're, we're uh, coming up on time. I've got a couple of questions I want to make sure that we get through here, but talking about the outsourcing thing, talking about all of that, I think also kind of makes me think about growth, right? And so you've been out in, in the space a little bit. A lot of your content lately has been around organic growth. And I've seen you fostering conversation around that. This seems to be a big trend in the industry, right? So Riskalyze rebrands to Nitrogen saying, hey, like advisors need to focus more on on growth and organic growth. And it's abysmal in the industry and we're here to help. And then, you know, you're talking about this a lot. What do you think is going on with that? Like talk to us about what it takes for a firm to really crank up their organic growth and not rely just on acquiring that 500 yeah. million in AUM that you're talking about before, or just, I mean, listen, we had 12 years of absolute raging bull market that was making all of these firms just grow with a tailwind. So now that everything's kind of come back to earth, there's only so many firms you can buy. How does a firm look at themselves in the mirror and say, we're going to grow organically. We're going to, we're going to do this through, through excellence and sales and marketing and process. Yeah. I mean, you said a lot of my content has been around this lately, literally this week, I, the latest article I published at wealthmanagement.com, the title was client niche 
everyone's talking about it and no one's listening. (laughs) 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 I, I and most every other industry consultant has been saying for a long time, the key to organic growth is identifying a narrow client focus, understanding exactly what problem you're solving for that segment of the population. From our COO roundtable, we've had a, a couple uh, uh, firms that have that have really taken this seriously. We had Vestia Personal Wealth Advisors on a few months ago. They specialize in working with physicians. And beyond just saying, hey, we can invest your, your wealth, on top of the investment com- component of it, they have stayed very much on top of the changing regulations around student loans because most physicians have these huge student loans. So they're very much on top of that. So these people are calling their financial advisor, you know, what can I do with my student loans? Because most physicians coming out of school, Vestia will actually help them negotiate their employment contracts. So all these these value props outside of, again, we just pick stocks or, or you know, we'll, we'll do a financial plan for you. More recently on our podcast, we had Geometric Wealth Advisors. They've done a, a many podcasts because their niche is, is so interesting. Andrew, Andrew Leonard, he came from the consulting world. He's built his entire client base on one white paper that he wrote. It was titled Investment Advice for Employees of Bain. And then he just changed the title, Investment Advice for Employees of McKinsey. And he changed the title, Investment Advice for Employees of Deloitte. And that white paper has been spread around the halls of these consulting firms. And everyone says, oh, you you know the unique challenges. These are highly compensated folks in their 40s or 50s. They don't have a huge portfolio to invest. So they're doing their kind of value prop is cash flow modeling, right? As opposed to you've got this huge huge portfolio. Michael Kitsis always uses one example. I mean, he's got, a, he talks about this all the time, but the funniest example that he uses, he had a guest on that focused on bass fishermen. And the joke Michael always makes is fishermen would have been too general for this guy. He's it's bass fishermen. <laughs> the advisor's dad was like, had, you know, some name in bass fishing. So this is a, clearly he's the only advisor walking around bass fishing competitions, handing out business cards. And there's no other financial advisor at these events. And again, to go outside of just the, I can pick stocks. So you've won the bass fishing competition. So not only can I invest that for you, but he helps them negotiate endorsement contracts of, you know, I, I use this lure to win the such and such, you know, so he's helping them. So if you're solving unique problems for a, a small subset of the population, you're going to grow exponentially faster than the majority of RA websites that just say, we work with individuals and institutions ranging from 5 million to 25 million. I mean, it's just so, it's so broad that, you know, and everybody says it, but I feel like no one's listening. When you're trying to appeal to everyone yeah. with these broad marketing uh, initiatives, you're, you're, you're appealing to nobody. You said at Carson, we kind of talked about that as passion prospecting. Like you know, often, often those things, the bass fishing guy, yeah. Chances are the guy loves bass fishing. And this is like, this is like every day it's a Super Bowl because I get to go and like, you know, enjoy this with all these folks that also enjoy it. And I think that's a, that's a opportunity to go do that. Lauren, uh, who runs Vestia is a friend of mine and, uh, you know, her dad was, is a a cardio surgeon. And so she grew up in that world and knows it really well, cares about it. And guess what? It's a heck of a lot easier to add a lot of value to those people because you just, you live in the trenches with them. And uh, yeah, we need to have a lot more of that. I just, too many advisors think an AUM range is their niche. And I just don't know why we're, again, kind of the same thing with the financial planning versus investment. Why are we still having this conversation? (laughs) Uh, uh, 10 million to 20 million is not a niche. Uh, 5 million to, you know, whatever you're, the 250,000 to 5 million, whatever you're, that's not a niche. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not all AUMs create right. equal, right, man? Yep. Um, so I, I, I do want to ask about that, though, because we've been talking about consolidation a little bit in this conversation. And as firms get bigger, right, law of large numbers kind of starts to come into play. A lot of these firms have bigger. So I, I love the advice about finding and, and tackling a niche. But as you become a large national RIA, do you think that should be a collection of niches and being served that way. So, hey, you know, we have five, 10 advisors that focus on this type of niche and 10 advisors that focus on this type of niche as you become really big. And because I think that makes a ton of sense. If it's just the three of us running a firm, okay, we're going to focus really, really, really tight on this. But if you're one of these mega national RIAs, right, you have to be able to be a little bit broader. So is that how you would think about that is create multiple niches and serve them well by putting people in groups? 100%. And then that goes back to our earlier conversation of 
did you have a logical explanation for doing the merger in the first place, right? So we work mm -hmm. with Delta pilots, they work with United pilots. It's, it's, that's a, that would be a great combination. Or we're yeah. covering pilots and you cover some other service industry. I mean, that would be a little weird, maybe pilots and, and consultants, but you know, we've got yeah. the service industry, at least you can try to tie the higher level um, niche on, on top of it. But yes, I think that's, that's how the consolidation works is teams, offices, locations, whatever you want to call it, service different segments of the population. Incredible. This conversation has been just full of knowledge and amazing industry insight. But one of my favorite things about doing this show is that I, I call this segment Beyond the Bio, right? So lots of people can probably go online and learn about Matt as the COO or learn about what you're doing at Coldstream or with the COO Society. Um, but one thing we really try to pull out is who is the person behind that work? Who's the person behind the wealth management stuff? When I was doing research for this podcast, I came across this heartbreaking story uh, as part of your background. Um, and I know you said you loved it, the opportunity to share about yeah. this, but it's wide ranging. But I want to hear the story about Layla Page and what happened with that and how that connects into a relationship with uh, the actor Jack Black. Yeah. Um, so you can kind of take that as you want. But this is a really important part of your story beyond the COO, beyond what you do. So tell us a little bit about the story of Layla yeah, Page. No, thank you. I I. I, I... Tell that we got to talk about Luke a little bit and, and Eddie Van Halen, and then I can talk about our daughter Layla and this this connection with with Jack Black. So Layla was born when I was working at Focus Financial. We were living in New York City. She was born in 2015 and passed every test uh, at the hospital. We thought we brought a, a healthy baby girl home with us. Around three months, uh, my wife started questioning. She doesn't seem to react to us when we walk in the room. She doesn't seem to light up the way Luke did. And and we went to plenty of doctors and they missed it. They said, uh, no, don't compare your children. Everybody develops at, at different stages. Um, but Reese, you know, good good moms, <laughs> they, they, they have that, 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 that mom sense. So she thought something might be wrong. And then at six months old, Layla had a seizure and that led to a bunch of tests. And sure enough, her brain simply just hadn't developed in the in the womb. It was um, on the scans. You could kind of see through parts of of the brain. So that led to a whole slew of, of medical problems. We, we, you know, a million tests with weeks and weeks on end at the, at the hospital. Um, her optic nerve and all, her eye was fine, but there wasn't enough brain to interpret sight. And her hearing, we checked the ear canals and the eardrum, everything. That was all fine, but there wasn't enough brain to interpret sound. So she was blind. She was deaf, couldn't drink from a bottle because she couldn't regulate swallowing. So that would always wind up in her lungs and she would start choking. And so we had to have feeding tubes. And we put the poor girl through of 18 months was her kind of medical journey. We tried a million drugs that all of a sudden started interacting negatively with one another. And we tried several surgeries. We were trying everything, just throwing everything at this to try to get some brain development. And then we had to have that, that heartbreaking moment where you realize quality of life is more important than, you know, tr just throwing all of these drugs in this tiny little, this little body. So we had to put her on, on hospice and, and kind of just, you know, I hate to say gave up, but we, we decided that the, the medical treatments that we were putting her through were hurting her more than they were helping her. So Trinity Kids Care Hospice is who took care of us in her last couple of months of life. She, she wound up uh, sadly passing. She was two years and two months old. In 2017, she, she passed away. And uh, we were numb for the first, you know, kind of year after she passed. And then we decided we wanted to do something to raise awareness for this great organization that had taken care of us. So we had a very small vision. We said, hey, let's get 10 of our friends uh, we'll make t-shirts. We'll walk down at the beach. We'll walk for half a mile or something. We'll kind of go out into the water. We'll hold hands. We'll kind of say, yay, Layla. And so we reached out to Trinity Kids and said, hey, do you think a journalist, a local, you know, just a local journalist would be interested in, in this story and it could get some press for you guys locally? And they said, we love this idea. Would you mind if, if we came up with a few ideas? We said, yeah, absolutely. They said, we'll come back to you. 10 days, 10 days later, they called us and they said, well, Jack Black's going to host your event. <laughs> and we said, wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? It turns out his brother was on the board of the hospice organization, and he had been asking them for a while, how can I help? What can I do? And so it just, the timing worked out perfectly. We had this idea of a walk. 
October 7th of, of this year uh, will be the fifth annual Layla Page Walk for Trinity Kids. He's hosted it four times. One of them, he did it virtually from his backyard uh, during COVID. We only missed, he was in Hawaii filming Jumanji one year and we couldn't have him. But uh, this will be his fourth time hosting. We had over 500 walkers last year. We've raised over $300,000 over the, the four events. And he had a... a video of him singing to one of their uh, patients at last year's event. And it, it went viral. He was singing some song from School of Rock and it had, you know, mm. 3 million plus views on TikTok and Twitter and everything else. So we're hoping this year is going to be an even bigger event, but um, it, he's been, he's been in incredible to help us out with that. Man, that is amazing. Jack Black, I know you're probably not listening <laughs> to this, but if you are good on you, that's really, really cool. And I don't know why this just makes me think like that, that tried and true phrase of you never know what people are going through, right? Like you, you see them yeah. out at work, you, you know, but everybody's going through something, right? And uh, I mean, it just, uh, my heart breaks for you, man, to, to lose a kid. That's just not how it's yeah. supposed to be for, for parents. Um, um, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that, but it's cool to see your perspective on it now. And it's cool to see you know, what has been able to come out yeah. of that story. Um, and that's incredible. Thank you. Appreciate so, it. I noticed too, that you do a lot of work with like the boys and girls club, or I'm sorry, big brothers and big sisters. Is that, is there any correlation to, to what happened with Layla Page in that? Or were you already doing work with big brothers and big sisters? How does, how does that story come into play? Yeah, I was, I was a big brother for eight years, uh, several years ago. We got paired when he was six. Evan was my little brother. Uh, we got paired when he was six. And then uh, at 14, he decided to go uh, live with his dad in, in New Orleans. But uh, we'd get together every weekend, ride bikes, and we'd go to the Redondo Beach Pier and have churros and ice cream. And, and it was a, an amazing oh, experience. Probably once a year, he'll come He'll come back into town and we'll, we'll go have dinner. He, ju he just graduated college now. <laughs> um, cool. So that was an, an amazing experience uh, several years ago for me. Yeah. I love it. I want to go get some cool, right? ice cream now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, Matt, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I've got one final question for you before we wrap this thing up. I call it the mile marker minute. So my question for you is, what is the number one tip you'd give to a firm that wants to supercharge their growth? Well, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to go with the answer we gave, uh, we gave earlier. I, I, again, I'm the operations guy. So everyone's like, why do you keep talking about client niche? Like that's more of a marketing thing, but it drives, it drives everything. It, it's knowing what your, what your service offering is. Well, then where the nerdy ops folks get involved in, okay, how do we design the service offering and, and actually execute on, on the problem, the specific problem we're solving for this subset of the, of the population. But I think that, that having a, a client niche and, and a, focus around who your ideal client is and what you're doing for them is how you, you supercharge your growth. Absolutely That's amazing. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. It has been an absolute pleasure. Before we wrap up, anything you want to shout out or plug or, or you know, let people know what's going on with you? Uh, COO Roundtable podcast um, is on all the podcast platforms as well as you, you um, can find it at coldstream.com. It's on there. COO Society is just COOsociety.com. That's the, the training platform with the cartoon videos, etc. I'm posting on LinkedIn every single day. I'm still posting on Twitter. I don't know <laughs> how long Twitter is going to last, but I'm still, still <laughs> you post every morning on Twitter. Like, is anyone out there? <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, as well. Excellent. Fantastic, man. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have the conversation with you and uh, we look forward to catching up with you awesome. again. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.